This afternoon, we're going to be continuing in our occasional series, uh, walking through uh, the disciples' prayer as we think about prayer and what we learn from that particular prayer, the disciples' prayer, often also called uh, the Lord's Prayer. Let us hear from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And also, the closing words, uh, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. When we get there next time, we'll talk about uh, why that is actually should be part of the prayer, even though it's not here in our particular text. about variance and stuff. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we have heard thus from your word. We pray you'd help us to receive it as such as your word. We ask that you, by your spirit, would take your word and drive it within us, lead us to yourself in Christ Jesus. You would plant it within us would guide us by it, O Lord. Help us, O Lord, that we might grow in Christ and see Christ afresh from your, from your truth. That we might rest upon him, even as expressed in prayer. Do your work in each of us. Would you rest upon this preacher? Help him declare your word truthfully, faithfully, and clearly chaining him to the text of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing we've mentioned in each each aspect of this series, uh, whether it was the overview of this particular prayer or looking at the various different parts of it, whether whether the addresses or the various different petitions, one thing we always mention is prayer is some of the hardest work that we do as Christians. In part because we are engaged in a conversation in which we don't hear back from the other party the way we would hear back as, we, as, as if we were talking to one another. And also sometimes we place burdens, burdens upon ourselves Uh, that we don't need to when we pray. In fact, Jesus addresses that in verses 5 and 6 when he says, and verse 7, when he says, don't pray uh, as the Gentiles do, heaping up empty phrases one upon the other. I'm explaining what that means. For they will be heard for their many words, saying that thinking that we have to have certain phrases and have to have certain formulas when in reality... It's simply approaching the Lord and seeking his goodness. We must also remember prayer is a great act that rejoices in the grace of God. For prayer is an act of thanksgiving in which we are thanking God for his goodness and his benefits and his grace. You might say, well, yeah, I give thanks to God when I pray, but it's the rest of prayer thanksgiving. Yes, it is. Any act of obedience is thanksgiving to God for his goodness. But the scriptures explicitly tell us that in Psalm 116. uh, In which David in the psalm is expressing 
The Lord has done many great things for me. He has delivered me from my enemies. And he says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? That is, what shall I do to say thank you to the Lord? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The first act of thanksgiving is that he will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. That's language to say to ask the Lord for more benefits. To ask him to continue to deliver. For that is an, not only an expression of saying help, that is an expression of dependence. Prayer is a declaration of dependence upon the Lord. And in so doing, it is a declaration of thanksgiving, which may fly in our faces in some sense, in which we uh, many times think, well, life is about being independent about not burdening other people, except the Lord is the great giver and the perfect king. And he invites us to seek his help. When we also approach the Lord with boldness because of his grace in Christ Jesus for all of our needs, temporally and spiritually. That we have every reason to go before him boldly because Christ has qualified us for it. In obedience, in expressing faith, because of the humility that is in prayer, because it expresses dependence, it is indeed an act of thanksgiving. There's no minimum amount of time that we need to pray, nor is there a maximum. We must also remember that while we endeavor, and while we should endeavor to pray well and to pray accurately, our prayers are not, he- are not heard on account of their accurateness or because of their eloquence or because of their precision. They're heard on the merits of Jesus Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit who makes groanings that cannot be uttered. For he knows the mind of God and he speaks the will of God, but we don't hear it. Not a sense of some sort of experiential groanings where we're literally groaning or experiencing something, some sort of ecstatic experience, but rather it's just a matter of the Holy Spirit speaking on our behalf. When we don't know what to pray. We've been looking at this prayer that we just read, which we often is oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer, but the Lord has spoke many, many different prayers. He gave this as a prayer for his disciples to say, this is how you should pray. A prayer that tells us the simplicity of prayer with the six basic petitions, the preface, and the conclusion. That when we approach God in prayer, we are approaching him as our father. Then the first petition, hallowed be your name. Second petition, your kingdom come. Third petition, your will be done on earth as it is heaven. Fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. Fifth petition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some would divide that up into two separate, um, two separate petitions, but either way, uh, what matters is what's there, not whether they're separate petitions or not. With the conclusion for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. In approaching God as Father, we are approaching him as one who is not our enemy, but as one who is our friend, who is our good God, into whose household we have been adopted. A Father who is not bound by the limits of created existence, but exists in the heavenlies, being able to do all that he wishes and is all that he desires to do. How many of us can do all that we desire to do? None of us. There's many things I desire to do, but I am limited by age, by other things, and just the fact that, you know, I would love to be able to jump and land at the airport. But that's physically impossible. But if God desires to do something, he can do it. He can do all that's in his holy will. And this is our father. We approach him as our father. It shows us our citizenship is not earthly, but heavenly. It's also the word our father. 
Meaning that while our earthly and familiar bonds are important, they are not absolute. Any other bonds that we make in this age, familial, um, ethnic, or uh, bonds built around nationality, or bonds built around uh, professions or things like that, are all temporary bonds. We are bound with God's people from every different walk of life eternally. When we pray, Our Father, we are praying in common with every believer. You and I have more in common with the believer living in a hut in the plains of a faraway land than an unbeliever who is at my place in life who might be very much like you or me in other ways other than my relationship to Christ. We've learned about hallowed be your name. We're asking that God would honor his names and his name in our lives and the church throughout the world. Your kingdom come. We're asking that the gospel would become ever more real to us and that his spirit would govern us. We would submit more and more to the governance of the Holy Spirit speaking to us in his word. Praying that the Holy that, that his kingdom would be ever more present in the life of the church, his rule and his reign, that we might be a people who not only have the gospel, but cherish it, who rest in Christ, to be faithful in our calling as a church and to have uh, his, her off, our offices filled with men faithful to Christ and to be faithful to the doctrine of God's word. And praying that also for the world, that the word of God may go out from his people to every kind of people throughout the world. And that people from every different walk of life might, just like us, be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13 we must, we must remember that Jesus did not offer a social and political transformation or revolution or some sort of a utopian dream in this age in his first coming. And he doesn't do so now. What he offers is eternal life with him in Christ Jesus. The upending of this age happens at his return. And we're also asking for his return, asking for his kingdom to come to ask for Jesus to make haste and bring about the day of resurrection and judgment. We're asking for the full number of those who will come to him. That is, we call the elect to come to faith in Christ. Those whom he is called will call to himself. We looked at your will be done earth as it is in heaven. God has his secret will that is, which is only known to him. That is the, job I might hold, the job that someone going to college or high school saying, what job should I, is God's will for me to have? Believe it or not, that's God's secret will. He has not made us privy to that information until it comes to pass. But his revealed will is what our concern is in this, that which he has given to us in the scriptures. This is his revealed will. What he has said is good and just for his creation to do. That for his will to be done in our lives, in our hearts, in our church, in our households, in our proverbial neighbors. And that it would be reflected in the same way here among us and in us as it is in heaven. Recognizing where our true citizenship lies. In the third petition, we're asking for God to give us our daily bread. Needs given for the day. It moves us away from storing, uh, uh, from hoarding things to ourselves, thinking about tomorrow, but rather trusting Him for today's, for today's needs. Recognizing He also calls us to be faithful and to be be wise and everything like that. Seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, and for our spiritual needs. For Jesus the Christ, ultimately, who Jesus, who is our Christ, is our daily bread, seeking that we might be fed from Him. And what we looked at, la- and what we looked at last time. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We are asking 
that the Lord might not only forgive us, but that we would forgive others of their offenses against us. Recognizing the importance of that. It's not a matter of asking individually for every sin we've ever committed. For if that were to be the case, there would not be enough time in the day. In fact, there would not be enough time in the day for every sin committed in a week or so. But rather, it is confessing those sins of which we are aware. And in this last petition we're looking at today, we see lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so that is where our attention is going to be today, focusing in and upon this. There's two things that we're asking here today, that when it comes to this thing called temptation, that the Lord would not lead us into it, or to put it positively, that the Lord would lead us away from it. And the second part of it is that whatever that, that this thing called evil, we would be delivered from it. Those are the two things that we are asking. There's, there's uh, four basic questions that we need that we're asking here that we hope to have that we desire to have answered today. First of all, if we are to be if we're asking God to not lead us to temptation, what is meant by temptation? And then secondly, what is it to be led into and also led away from temptation? And what is it to be delivered from evil? Of course, related to that is what is this evil? And then why is it necessary that we pray this? As always in this series, and just we did in the Ten Commandments, I'd, also, I'd like to uh, hear from voices in the past uh, regarding this particular petition uh, from a couple of different uh, resources uh, of the last several hundred years. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, What do we pray for in this petition? In the sixth petition, we pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. That's question number 106, if you want to look it up. And then its companion document, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Shorter Catechism is designed around kids and the Larger Catechism designed around adults. Now, say, what is a catechism? It's just a simple question and answer way of learning the faith, which was the first, first known catechism was one that came not from a Catholic, but came from Martin Luther, so that those who were being taught would have the faith internalized and be able to answer when the Roman Catholic Church came calling and said, come back. The larger catechism says in the sixth petition, Acknowledging that the most wise, righteous, and gracious God for diverse and holy and just ends may so order things that we may be assaulted, foiled, and for a time led captive to temptations that Satan, the world, and the flesh are ready, pow- ready powerfully to draw us aside and ensnare us, and that we, even after the pardon of our sins by reason of our corruption, weakness, and want of watchfulness, are not only subject to be tempted, and forward to expose ourselves unto temptation, but also of ourselves unable and unwilling to resist them, to recover out of them and to improve them, and worthy to be left under the power of them. We pray that God would so overrule the world and all in it, subdue the flesh, restrain Satan, order all things, bestow and bless all means of grace, and quicken us to watchfulness in the use of them, that we and all his people may by his providence be kept from being tempted to sin, or if tempted, the hour of temptation, or when fallen, raised again and recovered out of it, and have a sanctified use and improvement from there, that our sanctification and salvation may be perfected, Satan trodden under our feet, and we fully freed from sin, temptation, and all evil forever. That's a lot. But uh, those, but so we can see that there's uh, throughout history, folks have seen uh, there's a whole biblical theology behind this. My fa- my favorite catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, 
well, second favorite, my favorite being an Orthodox catechism, which is the same thing, but they got baptism, right? Um, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment while our deadly enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh assail us without ceasing, be pleased to preserve and strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we may make firm, stand against them, and not sink in this spiritual war until we come off at last with complete victory. And the Geneva, Cal- Cal- the Geneva Catechism, which was put together by uh, John Calvin, uh, reads very, uh, is basically an expanded version of the Heidelberg, which, of course, Calvin's came before Heidelberg. It's a summary. And Martin Luther, he says this, what does it mean to be deliver- for God to not lead us to temptation? It says, God tempts no one to sin, but we pray in this petition that God may so guard and preserve us that the devil, the world, and our flesh may not deceive us or mislead us unto unbelief, despair, and other great and shameful sins, but that though, although we may so, be so tempted, we may finally prevail and gain the victory. <clears throat> Martin Luther summed that up one time by saying this, In this, we're praying that while we can't stop the birds from landing on our head, we can keep them from staying there. And then deliver us from evil. We pray in this petition, as in a summary, that our Father in heaven may deliver us from all manner of evil, whether it affect body or soul, property or reputation, that at last, when the hour of death comes, he may grant us a blessed end and graciously take us from the world of sorrow to himself in heaven. So that's a little survey of ways that that has been approached um, going back several hundred years. But what do we mean by temptation? On the surface, when we hear the word temptation, our first thought is to say, well, that is just referring to temptation to sin. And while that, I would argue, is the main thrust here, it's not all that is present. It's not all that is present. The Greek word there that is translated temptation um, is uh, perasmos. Its word is used in a number of different locations in the New Testament. It is used for temptation proper. That's what we'll call being tempted to sin. Temptation proper. That is when something comes across our way and seeks to entice us to do something wrong. Or... Something that comes from within us, as James will say, and we'll hear that in a moment. Luke 4, verse 13, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Those were things that the devil laid before Jesus and said, Hey, you're hungry, right? That rock? That looks like a mighty fine piece of bread, doesn't it? And as well as the other temptations. Or, not only in terms of temptations to sin, but also in terms of trials, or we'll also see testings. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's perosmos right there. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And he speaks, of course, that that's referring to building up patience and the difficulties that come across our ways. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. And the word there is perosis for fiery trial. Um, we get uh, pyro from that. So fire. When the fiery trial, So do not be surprised at the fire when it comes upon you to perosmos you, to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Speaking of sufferings and persecutions. So there the word translated as temptation is used in terms of a testing of some sort. So those are the three main uses of ways that this word is translated and uses that it has in the, in the New Testament. What, are we, what is meant here? Are we, are we asking that the Lord would not lead us into trials? That the Lord would uh, not lead us into testing? 
or that the Lord would uh, protect us and not lead us into temptation to sin. And we'll talk about, if it is referring to that, how is it that God could possibly lead us into temptation? The very fact that God gives trials for our good would indicate that while we can pray that the Lord would not do so, that's not the primary idea here. Because indeed, but also remember that during times of testing and trial, we are often at great danger to succumb to various different temptations that may come across our path. Of course, when things are going smoothly for us, there's a different type of danger to temptation that is sometimes more insidious and devious. Even if trials and tests are what's primarily in view, I would argue that the main idea is, the, uh, is in the end, <clears throat> which is that we would, as Luther states, that the world, the flesh, and the devil might not deceive us or mislead us into unbelief, despair, and other great and shameful sins, that although we may be so tempted, we may finally prevail and gain the victory. Of course, then, if that is the case, if this is referring primarily to not being led into temptation, also remembering, it follows immediately, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. That it seems that the most logical way of looking at that, uh, what we would call Occam's razor, the simplest answer is usually the best answer. Or if you're a salesperson, you've heard of KISS. Keep it simple, silly. Um, the idea is the, si- the simplest answer there. <clears throat> but if that's the case, this says lead us not into temptation. If we are tempted then, does that mean that God is then the author of evil? And sin is we and uh, the, uh, the author of evil and sin is we are asking him to not lead us into temptation implying that he would lead us into such. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, when it becomes to temptation, we need to first of all remember, let no one say when he is tempted, again referring now to a different type of temptation than he just spoken, spoken of, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And if we continue, we see uh, that the source of temptation uh, doesn't doesn't typically re, re, doesn't re primarily come from outside of ourselves. But he said, "But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin it is fully grown and brings forth death." <clears throat> And so we must first understand that when temptation happens, when it comes across our path, temptation is first and foremost not something that we get to say, well, God made me do it. Remember the scene at the garden where we had that comical passing of the buck, in which the Lord said, what is this you have done? Adam said, of course, well, the woman you gave me, she gave me to eat. And then the woman said, well, the devil made me do it. Notice how Adam didn't blame the devil. He blamed God. He said, the woman you gave me. In Jesus' temptation... We must also remember the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. He led him into the circumstances where he was tempted in the wilderness. But the Lord did not tempt him. The Lord did not put forth the temptation. He led him to the circumstances where he was tempted. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. However, it was not the Father who tempted him. It was the devil who put forth the temptation. Temptation for a believer 
is always, for any human, and for even us as believers, is always a reality. Oh yeah, we didn't dismiss for nursery. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> based on James one, uh, because as based on James one thirteen, uh, an author I've been reading recently by the name of, this is an older name, it's an old Dutch name by the name of Zacharias Ursinus. In his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, he says disordered inclinations tempt men because they tend to such actions as God prohibits. Verse 12 speak, uh, of James chapter 1 speaks of counted all joy in the midst of trials. God leads us to testing. And in that testing, there's always temptation from the devil hitting our disordered inclinations. We must also remember that God's testing is always for our benefit and strength. So while we ask God, lead us not into temptation, lead us not into circumstances where we would find ourselves tempted. We must also remember God's testing is always for our benefit and strength. The same man, Ursinus, he says, God, however, tempts not to destroy us, nor to lead us into sin, but to try and to exercise us when he either sends calamities upon us or permits the devil or men or our flesh to provoke and invite us to sin, hiding for a time his grace and power in preserving and ruling us, that our faith and constancy by these exercises and trials <clears throat> may be more clearly manifested, not indeed to God, who knows from everlasting what and how great our faith is, and how great it will hereafter be by his blessing, but to ourselves and others, so that by these examples of our deliverance, there may be confirmed in us a confidence of the divine presence and protection, that a desire of imitating us may be awakened in others by seeing our perseverance, and that true gratitude may be kindled in all of us towards God, who has delivered us from our temptations. Remembering also, on the other end, the devil is always seeking to kill and destroy. Even when we are tempted, when we, when we are in a circumstance and a temptation comes our way, whether it's externally working with that which is internal or so forth and so on, we must remember that the devil is only permitted to tempt at the Lord's permission. Do we remember the story of Job? Who initiated that? That those things coming got, coming Job's way. It was not the devil. The devil appeared before God, and God said, "Take my servant Job. He fears me." And the devil said, "Well, it's because you protect him." Lift your hand. The Lord said, okay, you can do this and this, but you can't do that. And then he said, well, that's because you... And then after he, the devil failed, he came back again and said, said, see, he still fears me. Well, that's because you protected his health and his life. He said, well, you can take everything except kill him. Also, remember Peter. Jesus told Peter on that fateful night in which he said... Even though everyone would deny you, I won't. Jesus told him, Peter, he said before that, Peter, the, 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 the devil has asked permission to sift you. <clears throat> so temptation here is referring primarily to temptation to sin. But yet, built into that and behind that is all forms of testing that come our way in which there is all sorts of temptation. So when we say, lead us not into this temptation, what are we asking? Well, the positive, what is it to be led into temptation? First of all, remember, when God leads us into temptation, testings and trials in which temptations to sin are always present, or when um, he opens up the door for such to happen, it's for the purpose of trying and proving us according to his purposes for our benefit and for bringing us closer and closer to Christ. 
for even when we fall to temptation, the point is to get up and to turn to Christ, who is our Savior. Remember, the devil's temptation is only at God's allowance. So we are asking with regards to both. For the first, that is, for trials and testings. We are asking that God may be pleased to not lead us into trials and testing. If he does, that we might have strength to endure in faith and in hope and in love. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Any trial we face in and of ourselves is more than we can endure. So, but he said he's not going to give us more than he can endure. In him. Remember, this is all in Christ. It is in him that we can endure and to rely not upon ourselves, but to rely upon his strength, recognizing how incredibly weak we are, how incredibly needy we are. Recognizing how impoverished we are. That is where our strength and endurance lies, for in that we turn to his strength and away from our supposed strength. To sing with the father in the movie or the play, Fiddler on the Roof, when he sings, If I Were a Rich Man, to sing, If I Were a Poor Man. Because that is where our strength and riches lie, is in his riches and not our own. But for that which the emphasis here, that is of temptation to sin, we're asking that he would not permit the world, the flesh or the devil to entice us to sin. And that if we are, the Lord would be with us that we might not fall to sin. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Again, we don't have the strength in and of ourselves to resist such temptation. It's a matter of remembering what is ours in Christ and trusting God to help us. And so when it comes to trials, testing, enduring, when it comes to saying no to temptation, We must go before the Lord and say, Lord, please protect us from being tempted. But built into that is this, because of the second part as well. When we are tempted, deliver us from it. And when we do fall, deliver us from the temptation to run to ourselves, but to to run to Christ. Instead, this is an expression of neediness, how much we need him. And the second part of this prayer, what we see deliver us from evil. First of all, what do we mean by evil? The Greek word here is poneros, not the same as pornea, which sounds the same, but it's different. Poneros sometimes refers to specific act types of evil as in things that are qualitatively evil. They are sinful, such as envy, viciousness, or harm. But the greatest use of this word is speaking of evil in general, such as in Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Destruction is evil, is an evil. In fact, there's when I was uh, a very young Christian in terms of my, I was in my 20s, but I was young, I was young in Christ, a brand new believer. And I was reading the King James Bible and there was a line in the book of Exodus when Israel had uh, <clears throat> rebelled against the Lord. They built the golden calf and Moses was pleading with the Lord to not do it. 
And the way the King James read, and this threw me for a loop. I wasn't sure what to do with it. But it said, and the Lord repented of the evil he was going to do to Israel. And, I, and that shook me. Because I viewed this in terms, so God was going to sin and he decided not to sin. Is speaking of the judgment he was going to bring upon him, the destruction, the calamity. And he did not do it. It used, it used the manners of speaking. God does not change his mind. <clears throat> it's not, uh, he always does. He is, he is always true to himself. This is simply the way, the way he's speaking in the way things appear to us. Because <clears throat> we cannot change God. So we see it has to do with de- it. Uh, it has to do with de- this word evil. It has to do with deeds that are both morally evil as well as evil. That is a result of the sinful state in which we live: death, destruction, pain, illness, etc. All those are a result of the fall. All those are a result of the fact that Adam ate of that fruit, and we ate with him when we we were there with him. He was our representative. All, all evil in this world. Death is an evil. Destruction is an evil. Pain is an evil. Illness is an evil. And in this age, and this age is beset with evil, and we will not escape it in this age. Not until Christ returns. But we also need to understand something else. Evil is an adjective here, sort of like um, the word red. Okay, this is a red book. Red is an adjective. It's describing the book. It's not just a book. It's a red book. It's also it's a red hymnal, to be specific. But the word evil here is an adjective. It's a describer. But there's nothing that it's a, to which it's attached. Which means, based on the way Greek grammar works and grammar in general it becomes a noun in and of itself understood as deliver us from not just evil but the evil one that's all that the devil does and is brought into this world from the first sin to what in what to, to whatever he is engaged in to this day what is it to be delivered from this evil one then all the various different circumstances that may come against us. Other than God delivering us, we don't have any protection. So when we ask God to deliver us from evil, we're asking that first that he would not send us any evil or permit it to come to us, but to keep and defend us from present and future evils. Both in terms of... um, whether it would be uh, some sort of discipline, or or that would cut that were of which we are of which we deserve, <clears throat> or that he would not send evils upon us, or that if he does send those evils, that he would help to, that they might be made smaller, and may contribute to our to our growth in Christ, and that God will fully and perfectly in this life. Uh, and that he will, at the end of the age, deliver us to come to wipe away all tears from our eyes. It's Revelation 21.4 verse says. That's where the ultimate deliverance from evil comes. That is, in summary, our evils would be lessened when they come upon us. And that we would endure through them. That we would come through them more mature in Christ. But also remembering, we just said, Revelation 21, verse 4, tells us, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We're asking that God would hasten the resurrection, that we would finally be free from this body of death, 
and the very presence of sin and the experience of this fallen world. That is where this deliverance comes. We're asking him to hasten his return for that is our hope. Why is it necessary to pray this? Why should we ask the Lord to deliver us from evil, from to not to not lead us into temptation? First of all, we recognize that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves. We are not equipped to take on this world, to take on the flesh, to take on the devil. We are not strong enough to endure the trials and testing that come our way. So we need to ask God to lead us away from them and to deliver us from them. And that when we are tempted, that the Lord would uphold us. That when we succumb to temptation, that we'd be rem- remember to keep looking to Christ. To ask to remember that we need strength. Someone else's help as we live day to day. We might say, but if testing and trials and the evil that might come across our path is for our benefit, because God uses all those things to strengthen us. Why, would, why should we pray for deliverance? It's because God's mercy accompanies those. Without those, they are not pro- without God's mercy, they are not profitable, but they, they are demonstrations of the fallenness of this age. Those afflictions are evil in and of themselves. And we're asking the Lord to, to deliver us from that evil, recognizing that God permits those things in our lives that we might be strengthened. We should pray for deliverance when we are in the midst of those. Or consider the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ in the garden before he was betrayed. He said, let this cup pass from me. Then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If it is all, if at all possible, there is a way that we could accomplish this redemption without having to endure that which is about to be endured. Let's do it that way. But nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. But brothers and sisters, in this life we will, never be, we will never be free from temptation and testing, nor will we be free from succumbing to such things in the midst of them. Yet in some of them we can find endurance. And we can also learn from where we have failed. Failure is a great teacher. When I was a professor at the Bible college, I had students who would come to me afraid of writing their term papers. I'm not a good writer. What if I absolutely, what if I just butcher the paper and fail? Well, my students knew right on the only way they could fail my class was by not trying. That's the only way they could fail. And I told them, you have my permission to fail and to fail miserably, but not, none whatsoever to not take the risk. Now that we do not have permission to sin, but in our sin, we learn. We're driven to Christ. We must learn from our sin. Not to do that. And in this, in this part of this prayer, it's a confession of our weakness and keeps us from exalting ourselves. It's one that looks forward to the day of Christ's return and that it declares the miseries and evils of our present life. It points us that our security is not in this world but in Christ so that with this age we won't fall in love with. 
we acknowledge God's providence in all things in life and death, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want. To borrow from waiting vows. It is, and when we look at this, there's also a an order to these petitions. We approach the Lord our God as our Father in the true knowledge and profession of God, the one who's the source of all of our blessings. We ask that the Lord would rule us by His Spirit, that we might continually confirm and preserve us in Him, that we might discharge our duties and faithfulness and faith in Christ Jesus, that we would have blessings in this age and have the uh, strength necessary to live as Christians. Also acknowledging <clears throat> that we are indeed sinners in need of grace and forgiveness, which then goes to the next one saying, the very fact that there's temptation shows us we have need of forgiveness. And so that the Lord might deliver us from those things that would lead us to sin. And that when we are in those things, those temptations, those testings, those trials, the evils that come our way, we would endure in Christ Jesus and turn to him when we fall short. That we might declare this grace and this goodness. And that we might grow in the likeness of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let us be a people who look to him in strength, saying to him, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us pray. Father, many things come across our path, and there's not a thing that happens in which your, your hand is not present. And we ask with this, Lord, that you would deliver us, that you would lead us away from temptation. And when we are in the midst of temptation or testings or trials, that you would uphold us and we would turn to Christ and that you would deliver us from evils, whether it be our own evil or the evils of this age knowing that in this life we will be afflicted with him, looking forward to the great day when indeed our tears shall be wiped and all suffering shall be gone. Help us to rejoice in that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.